This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, we look at developmental leadership in the Philippines. Because what's good for developmental leadership is probably good for development generally. My guest is Professor Michelle Schweisberth. In a recent report for the Developmental Leadership Program, with support from the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, Michelle and a team explored the ways in which higher education has supported the emergence of developmental leaders and the formation of networks among leaders in the Philippines. And the Philippines has, has been a country of, of great promise for, for, for many, many years with a, a rich history and, and great economic prospects. But distribution has been you know, a real issue. We find a highly stratified society where the gap between the rich and the poor is absolutely enormous. And that is reflected in education as well, where you find um, very elite, very high quality institutions, and you find very poor, very much lower quality institutions. Despite the fact that some of them were rather scathing about their own educations, um, they seem to have a lot of faith in education's potential. Michelle Schweisberg is Professor of Comparative and International Education at the University of Glasgow, where she is also co-director of the Robert Owen Center for Educational Change. Michelle Schweisberg, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you, and thanks for inviting me. You've recently conducted a case study on developmental leadership in the Philippines. What is developmental leadership? Well, developmental leadership is leadership that promotes development. Um, it seems uh, fairly common sense that, um, that we would want leadership to be developmental, but it isn't always. Uh, one of the problems of development is that there have been leaders who've been less than developmental, and uh, some, in fact, have been even predatory. So developmental leadership is specifically interested in, in leadership which has promoted development, uh, social justice, um, and, and some of those, those public goods that, uh, that, that come with it. So what type of leaders were you researching? Well, in the Philippines, we, we chose three different um, social movements or, or political movements um, that were in the post-Marcos era. And we were basically looking at um, people who'd been involved in procurement reform, so people who'd been involved in a sort of technical reform, which was around promoting transparency, uh, people who were involved in the Mindanao electoral reform, which is part of this uh, bigger um, movement within the autonomous um, region of, of Muslim Mindanao, and it was about en ensuring that elections were, were clean and fair. And the third was um, a social movement called Gawakalinga, which means to give care, and, and that's a, a, a large NGO that, that works with the poorest people in society, um, works somewhat outside the political system, but to similar ends in terms of redistribution, in terms of pro-poor policies and so on. So we chose those three movements, and what we were looking at was the leadership within them. So we tried to get the person highest up in the leadership that we could talk to, and then talk to other people around him or her. 
So we, we spoke to really quite some powerful and, and influential people. We chose those reforms on the basis that they were promoting things like transparency, had a pro-poor agenda, and uh, we chose the leaders on the basis of the fact that, that they were the leaders and obviously willing to talk to us, which was an important criterion. What sort of environment do these leaders in the Philippines operate in? Well, I, I don't know how much listeners know about the Philippines. Um, it's a fascinating place, but it's, it's called, and it sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it's called an oligarchical democracy. So in a sense, there's democracy, but on the other hand, you find these um, family dynasties that, that have, have uh, had um, power in, in the Philippines over years, or, or you have um, groups that, that have, have formed kind of power blocks. So, so there's, a, there's democracy on the one hand, but on the other hand, it seems a little bit stitched up uh, and, and quite hard to, to get into. Um, there's also, as there is in, in many places, uh, something of an issue with corruption. Um, and the Philippines has, has been a country of, of great promise for, for, for many, many years with a, a rich history and, and great economic prospects. But distribution has been you know, a real issue. There are you know, 20 million very poor people in the country. And we find a highly stratified society where the gap between the rich and the poor is absolutely enormous. And that is reflected in education as well, where you find um, very elite, very high quality institutions and you find very poor, very much lower quality institutions. And do these different contextual factors of the Philippine society how are they reflected in the education system? Well, certainly the education system, as I said, is very stratified. So you get um, very old. I mean, the oldest university in Asia is, is in the Philippines. And um, you have these, these private institutions with very, very long traditions, very deep uh, attachments to the church or, or particular groups within the church. Um, you have very high quality institutions and, and much lower quality institutions. And I don't suppose it's surprising that the richer people are much more likely to go to the elite institutions and poorer people are, are much more likely to go to the poorer quality institutions. Um, it's, it's you know, very stratified generally, um, and that's reflected in both the populations that attend these institutions and in the outcomes that they have and the prospects that, that flow from that. Do, do elites generally send their children to public, secondary, primary and secondary school, or are, are there um, large numbers of private schools that are populated by the elites? There are large numbers of, of private schools, um, and some of them are very expensive. And there's a kind of feeder school system where, you know, from a young age, you might know, for example, that you want your child to go to Ateneo because you went to Ateneo. And, and if, you, if you have the resources, you can send that child to schools which prepare them for to entry into Ateneo uh, because they're affiliated with Ateneo and they, they have the right ethos. Um, 
he, he or she meets the right people uh, and he or she studies you know for the entrance exams for for Ateneo so so there's a way there's a kind of escalator so that if you go to the right primary school and secondary school you have the better chance of, of going to the university that you've targeted there is uh, one of the elite universities that is actually a public university and that's the University of the Philippines. So in some ways that's a, a very different sort of institution and interestingly not only is it different, not only is it not attached to a particular part of the church, uh, it has a, a very long history of political activism. So during the um, demonstrations against Marcos in, in, in that era there were a lot of uh, demonstrations on campus. Um, there was a highly politicized environment, and a lot of the people that we talked to sort of cut their political teeth in those sorts of protests um, in in the University of the Philippines. Where where did the leaders that you spoke with and interviewed where did they go to school? The I mean beyond the University of the Philippines, like did they in their primary and their their secondary education? What sort of schools were they traveling through? Uh, well, it was a mixture. Um, it's not as simple as to say that they all went to elite schools. Um, what we did find, uh, just as a generalization, I mean, in, in the report there, there's a breakdown that's more specific, but what we did find was that a lot of these people came from say lower middle class or middle class backgrounds um, but perhaps their families were, were very very keen to support them in their education really invested massive resources that they couldn't afford to invest um, and and sent them to the best schools that they possibly could uh, and that that made a really big difference for them um, these are often people too who were self-starters um, you know certainly by the time they reached secondary school they were autodidacts in the sense that they you know kind of taught themselves a lot read very widely so it, it, one of the things that really emerged from the conversations with these people was that they'd they'd learned despite their education that they'd actually you know sort of been exposed to the right books and exposed to interesting ideas but it was really their own interest in these themes and and their own motivation that that was the greatest factor in their own learning and i you know as as a researcher myself i i always um find it hard to to speak with people and have have them open up about their own personal backgrounds and, and what are the defining features, in their opinion, for their life. Um, so how did you end up getting these people in relatively high positions in different um, sectors of the economy? How did you get them to open up to you when you were doing interviews? That, it was really interesting, Will. They... It was hard to get access in the first place. We, we were very lucky to have a, a well-connected uh, Filipino researcher on the team um, who worked very hard to get us in with people. And then once we'd had one or two interviews, that opened up others and so on. So the, the access issue was not surprisingly uh, problematic because these were extremely busy people. And you know who were we to ask for their time? But I have to say that once they gave us their time, uh, they were extraordinarily open and the interviews often went on for much, much longer than we'd expected. 
And I suppose, you know, who doesn't like to talk about themselves, right? It was, um, it was, it was great that they, that they felt that they could. Um, most of them were, were extraordinarily open about their experiences. Some of them were quite critical about their educational experiences. I mean, inevitably, when people narrate their own stories, they, you know, they impose a certain view of themselves that, you know, looking back on their lives kind of helps them to understand who they are. And it may not be the whole truth. Sometimes it's more of a series of accidents than, than the story sounds like. But really, um, it, was, it was amazing. We were talking to some very powerful, very busy people, and uh, they, on the whole, seemed to be enjoying it, to be honest. And I guess maybe these were questions they hadn't been asked before, and it was welcome to them to have the opportunity to reflect. How do you, how do you know when, when some of the stories they're telling are embellished and, and when are others actually closer to the truth, I guess? I don't know if you can know, uh, apart from the same way that you would if we were talking to anyone. You pick up clues in body language or, or the tone or, you know, I mean, and some of these people had written biographies or whatever, and you, you sort of get a sense of when they're stepping into a discourse that maybe has been used before or whatever. Um, but, you know, the, the, the methodology really relied on us trusting them to tell the truth as they saw it, and we had no reason to doubt it. Um, it might have been, I mean, I think it's important to remember that we were talking to the developmental leaders. Now, if we, you know, done the opposite study and said, let's go and talk to the most corrupt leaders that we can find and get them to talk about how they, how they became so corrupt, I think we'd get a different sort of truth uh, and probably um, slightly more distorted. So I think the starting point being that we think you're great, why are you so great? Um, probably helped people to, you know, feel firstly that they could be open and, and secondly, so that they could insert some things, well, actually, I'm not so great, you know, <laughs> and, and, and there were some problems in my education. Right. Um, so what sort of findings did you end up uncovering after you did all these interviews? Well, there were, there were a wide range of findings. I mean, I suppose... They, they, they fell into a number of categories. One, one was around the, the kind of nature of the education that they'd received and how that influenced them. And that's where this issue around the curriculum and, and pedagogy came through, which was about, you know, most of the respondents being very critical of the experiences that they'd had, with some exceptions. They'd maybe met a few inspiring teachers along the way, but on the whole, um, they, they felt that the way they were taught was, was very top-down, very frontal. And so what helped them to learn was their own drive and, and, and their own motivation. So it was, there was that sort of thing about the despite my narrative, uh, or despite my, despite my education narrative. There was also a bit of an assumption that the networks that people met at these institutions would probably be part of their political world or their or their social movement world 
later in life. Um, that is, there's a lot of literature in developmental leadership which, which points to the kind of you know, schooling and, and higher education as, as contributing to the development of those kinds of coalitions. And also a, a related study in Ghana pointed very much to particular institutions where, which had meritocratic entrance and where certain sorts of people met each other and then went on to, to work together to, to push through reforms. That wasn't so much the case in, in the Philippines. Uh, people did meet people who were important to them later in life, but not necessarily people that they worked with closely. What, they, what, what really higher education especially did for them was expose them to a whole range of people, people unlike the people they'd grown up with, people unlike the people they'd gone to primary school with, and those people didn't necessarily become part of a coalition with them, but they learned how to understand others and they could draw on them later for a much broader base of support. So if they were trying to push through a really big reform that perhaps there was opposition to in different groups, they could call on what they call batchmates, people they'd, they'd been to university with, they could call on them for, for kind of helping them to get broader based support. The, the kind of sociological term, it, it's a dimension of social capital, it, and social capital, uh, Putman was broken down into bonding capital and bridging capital. So bonding capital is the kind of capital that you have with people who are very much like you and, you know, so family, friends, people from your particular stratum of society. Bridging capital is with when you when you get a kind of capital from people in, from your relationships with people who are different from you, and we found that it was the bridging capital that seemed to make the biggest difference to these people's ability to foster change. First of all, they understood how other people thought, including people who were future enemies. Uh, they understood um, the ways and barriers that different uh, strata of society faced and different groups of society faced. And they also had these allies in, in different groups, in, in different um, ethnic groups, religious groups, uh, social classes, but also um, different sectors. So people that they went to school with maybe went into business or went into the church or, or, or went into uh, teaching higher education or, or went into politics and they had these networks that they could draw on from across those different sectors. And, and were these um, networks or was this bridging capital that was being developed in school, was this in higher education or did this also happen at earlier stages? It mainly, it really the bridging capital started to emerge more in higher education and I think this was one of the interesting findings that you know, the, 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 the primary, in primary school, people tend to go more to their local school, are more likely to be with people who are like them. And it's as you move up uh, the different phases of education, people become less and less like you, uh, assuming that there is selection, assuming that um, institutions are selective, but also you have more power to choose where you go to uh, study. So I suppose the extreme example of that was uh, quite a few of our interviewees had studied abroad 
And so that's the ultimate example of going somewhere where people are very different from you. So they, most of them had studied in, in the States if they'd studied abroad. And they, they met people who were from a completely different culture, um, a, a whole different way of thinking, and also a whole different way of teaching and learning in the institutions where they studied. So that was, I suppose, the ultimate break, the ultimate kind of movement into something very different. And they, they, they often talked about how they saw the Philippines differently by virtue of, of being away from it and studying it from afar um, with people who, with whom they could reflect on it in a different way. So the, when those individuals that went to America for study abroad, did they create networks with people there that they then relied on back in the Philippines? Or was it more of the experience of being taken out of the Philippines that allowed them to maybe see the Philippines in a new light? It was a little bit of both. Uh, a lot of these people had really international networks, not just networks within the Philippines. And of course, studying abroad facilitated that. They also, you know, often had other people from the Philippines studying in the same place. And, and I think that was a natural sort of bonding experience. Um, I, I've also done some work on international students and we do find this, that, that people gravitate naturally toward people who are, are from their home country that they might not necessarily have, have come across in the Philippines. So, and those people sometimes went on to be important to them later in life. But it was also the experience and, and the opportunities that it, it afforded to, to think differently and see things differently. All of the different networks that you say were kind of built in the bridging capital that was developed in higher education during these leaders' time in higher education. Were the leaders aware that this was happening? Like when they were telling you these stories, did they realize that a lot of the success that they have today was reliant on this bridging capital that developed in higher education? Well, they certainly didn't use the term bridging capital. That was <laughs> that was a little academic trick that we did, uh, where we we superimposed this theoretical framework retrospectively on on the data that we'd we'd gathered. Um, but yeah, it was the sort of thing. I don't. I'm just trying to think back to the flavor of the interviews. Uh, my feeling was that they hadn't maybe thought about it, but that the way we asked the questions encouraged them to think about it because we asked them about networks and we went in kind of half expecting that the networks would be that bonding kind of network of, of people that they'd been very close to perhaps throughout their schooling and then had, had, had uh, taken forward into their political and, and social movement lives. But what came out, I think naturally in the interviews, was a was yeah exactly this this kind of sense of diversity um in, in terms of of who they'd met and who had become part of their network what were some of the reasons that these people decided to work for social change yeah they they had a range of reasons a lot of them referred to a particular role model in their lives who they'd admired. Often, often it was a, somebody in their family who had been perhaps promoting social justice more often than not at a more local level 
um, you know, like their father had been the local doctor who'd really helped the poor people in the village where they grew up. That that sort of story was quite common. And what they were enabled to do through their education, through their networks, through sometimes luck, through sometimes great personal drive, was to amplify those values into something that brought about political or, or social changes. And uh, they were able to take, you know, those fundamental principles that perhaps they'd been exposed to early in life and actually turn them into concrete changes that, that affected society. And what sort of visions did they have for development in the Philippines? That there were a range of different visions of development. Um, I mean, I'll just give you a few examples. So, so for some people, there was this kind of sense of charity. So, and this sometimes had religious foundations that, you know, we need to help the disadvantaged and, and uh, that, that development is about kind of this pro-poor, um, but, but a sort of charitable kind of notion of, of how that pro-poor action works. Um, the, another related but quite different vision of development was a much more radical redistributive kind of development. Um, some people were, were very critical of the elites and just felt that, you know, what we need to do is just turn the whole thing upside down. That was, that was a, a phrase that obviously was knocking around in Gawa Kalinga because several of, the, um, several of the interviewees from Gawa Kalinga talked about it. They talked about flipping the pyramid. So at the moment, we've got a highly stratified society with, you know, a few elite at the top and lots and lots and lots of poor, undereducated people at the bottom. And the bottom are powerless and the top have all the power. And they said, let's flip it. You know, why is it that, you know, these, these elites have so much power? And, and they, so they, so they had this much more radical redistributive agenda. Um, but, uh, but also, I mean, a, a very different sort of discourse emerged from the people in the procurement reform um, who had a, a more sort of liberal attitude um, that, you know, we, we need to have a system where development can happen, but we need to introduce these checks and balances because otherwise corruption is going to, going to prevent development. So they, there was just this assumption that there's a particular direction that development is going in and you just need to make sure that you know, there are systems in place to stop you know, the wrong people from taking advantage of the system. So they had a more sort of technocratic view of, of how you foster positive development. Instrumentalist. Exactly, exactly. So let's, let's bring in some laws to stop, you know, stop people from taking advantage of, of procurement opportunities to, to you know, help their friends and help themselves um, and just, yeah, be, be instrumental about it. What sort of role did education play for their the vision of, of the Philippine future? Um, like, did these leaders see education as playing um, a key role in the development that they envisioned for the society? They did. I mean, despite the fact that some of them were rather scathing about their own educations, um, they seemed to have a lot of faith in education's potential. Uh, if education changed, and they were very much um, at one in this. Most of them had quite similar 
sort of prescriptions for bettering education in the Philippines. And it was about making it less stratified, more meritocratic, um, encouraging more critical thinking in, in, the, um, in, in the curriculum and, and through pedagogy so that you lose this very frontal, very reproductionist kind of um, approach to, to education and, and you know critical thinking is in the end at, at, at the heart of development particularly you know in in the 21st century they also and this this seems like a small thing but it came through again and again they they were very much about looking at education in the round so w when we think about in, institutions of education we, we tend to think about you know the curriculum and and pedagogy you know that's that's what it's about but they the networks were obviously important but a lot of them also talked about the importance of extracurricular activities and i already mentioned some of the political activism that that some of them were involved in um and but it wasn't just those sorts of extracurricular activities it was school councils and and higher education um councils uh but even things like cheerleading, you know, any, any opportunities that these people had to exercise leadership, to bring people together, to kind of stretch their muscles a bit and, and, and perhaps lead people who weren't all the same as them, promote change, promote different ways of doing things. And, and that's perhaps obvious in political activism, a little bit less obvious in cheerleading, but people were quite adamant about this. So, so those, those were some of the higher education functions that they talked about, but there was also you know, higher education institutions as research institutions and being able to generate information that could support positive change in government and also to, to uh, provide contradictory evidence to some of the claims that politicians were perhaps making about the economy or or about education or whatever you know having have universities they felt had a role to play in generating that evidence that can can inform policy and obviously again that takes us to to a wider vision of what universities are for who was this report for the report was for um, the developmental leadership program uh, and they they have um, a number of research uh, projects going on, um, and they they education is just one kind of corner of what they do. It, they're actually more developmental. Uh, they're they're, they're um, international development people on the whole, and education we we are the educationists within that, but that's a, a kind of fraction of what they do. It's funded through Australian aid. So it's the Australian Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. What used to be AUSAID. Used to be AUSAID, exactly, exactly, uh, and is now DFAT. And um, yeah, so, but, but they, it's, it's actually the Developmental Leadership Program itself that, that commissions this research and, and related research. Within that, they have a higher education research group. Um, and this falls within that. And I mean, people who are interested in this kind of research, there's a DLP has a website um, where they where the reports can be found from from across. Um, this the, the higher education research that they've done started with a you know a, a kind of 
broad-based literature review, effectively, and evidence review of the relationship between higher education and development, which people who are interested in those questions might, might be interested in accessing, because it does do some quantitative work around, well, what happens when countries start investing in higher education? Do we see something changing? Does DLP mostly do research, or are they also, say, working with governments and, and actually trying to implement some of what they have learned through reports like yours? Well, I think certainly in the UK, I don't know about in other places, um, it's less and less a case of research for, for research's sake, and, and there's an expectation that what you research is going to have some impact. So uh, I was funded recently to go back out um, to the Philippines and, and do some dissemination, talk to people. Um, it'll be really important to share our findings and, and the policy brief with people who were involved in the research. Um, we've got, um, uh, I mean, I, I attended the conference, the annual conference of the all the uh, public university leaders. So there are 700 university leaders from across the country and I did a presentation to that conference. So I think the expectation is that, okay, these findings may not be rocket science, but this has something to say that's very specific to your jobs and you know, think about what this might mean, what might you do differently that could foster developmental leadership. Because what's good for developmental leadership is probably good for development generally. So, you know, on the one hand, you know, we're, we're talking about developing an elite that's going to go on to, to promote positive change in the country. But on the other hand, yeah, you know, critical thinking shouldn't be restricted to that elite. This should be happening across the board. Well, Michelle Schweisberth, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Well, thank you very much. I, I enjoyed our chat. Michelle Schweisworth is Professor of Comparative and International Education at the University of Glasgow. Her latest co-written report on developmental leadership in the Philippines can be found on Fresh Ed's website, freshedpodcast.com. Check it out today. Next week, I speak with Peter Cave about changes in Japanese junior secondary schools. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. Fresh Ed contributors include Rolf Straubhar, Eric Lehman, D. Brent Edwards Jr., Chrissy Monahan, and Aaron Baxter. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Please be sure to visit us at freshedpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll see you next week.